Hello, everybody. If I said uh, happy Boxing Day, would you know what I meant? How many know what I mean? Happy Boxing Day, yeah. You see, we uh, moved to England, and T.R., no, he, yeah, T.R., Melissa, Louise, and me. By the way, tonight I have my wife, my son, and three grandsons. Yeah. But uh, like the first day we were in England, 1973, I remember going to the, they call them pillar boxes, where it were put in the mail. And it said on there, closed Christmas and Boxing Day. And I had no idea. And I thought, does that mean Muhammad Ali comes across and does an exposition or exhibition? And it's talking about people on the day after Christmas that worked for royalty opened their boxes. And so we were there for over 30 years. So when it's the day after Christmas, it's still Boxing Day for us. So I thought some of you might know about that. Anyway, I just thought I'd say that. <laughs> Wonderful to be with you again on this last Tuesday of 2023. I want to read a scripture to you. It will be from 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting at verse 8. Verse 6, I'm sorry. I want to speak on the subject, finishing well. The words of the Apostle Paul, his last words before he went to heaven. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure to close. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. May God be pleased to bless the reading and the preaching of this, his most holy and infallible word. Brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I ask now for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your Spirit to rest upon every person here in order that their perception of what I say will be heard, received as you intend. Cleanse my tongue that I will be your transparent vehicle to say everything that needs to be said, nothing that doesn't need to be said. Help me to be very, very clear very, very simple. And may this word be life-changing and a word that brings great honor and glory to your name. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Finishing well. You have only one life. This is it. The life that you're having, this is it. 
you have only one body. It is the body you have now. Or as C.T. Studd put it, only one life will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. And so finishing well is arguably the greatest and most rewarding goal you can have. And so we're at the end of another year. Could I ask you, do you think you are finishing well? What I propose will guarantee that you finish well in the coming year. But more important than that, that you know when it comes to time to die, you can finish well. Paul finished well. I was just thinking, I was saying to uh, Jerry and Chooks before the service, (laughs) a lady came up to me in South Africa 10 years ago, 10 years ago, and said to me, this is verbatim, it is so good to meet someone who has finished well. I said, thank you. (laughs) I've lived 10 years since then, and I'm hoping I might have some more time. But I can tell you this. Well, thank you. Finishing well. I don't think there's a greater goal. When I think of the situation at the moment in the church generally, there are those, it's so sad, that have not finished well. And it is something that doesn't bring honor to God. But let me give you what I would think is the definition of finishing well. If at the end of the year, if you you have regrets, uh, or if you do, they've already worked together for good. But then the great goal is not the end of the year, but the end of life that you could have the conscious witness that you have pleased God. And so the Apostle Paul knew that any moment they would knock on his cell door and said the time has come that he would be beheaded. Well, what I want to do this evening, this last Tuesday, 2023, is to give 10 principles, 10, that guarantee you will finish well in 2024, and if you can keep these 10, you will finish at the end of your life, finish well. So I'll come right to the point. Number one, that you put yourself totally under Scripture, your whole life. The Bible is the Word of God. It not only contains the Word of God, that was the phrase used back in the 50s and 60s where Christianity began to make a turn. It's never been the same since. Where they were saying that the Bible contains the Word of God. No, it's more than that. It is the Word of God. And when you realize that, As the psalmist put it, your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. 
Or as one version put it, I've treasured your word. Job 23 verse 12, I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. How well do you know your Bible? Many of you, I know, have a Bible reading plan, taking you through the Bible in a year. I would urge you to have a Bible reading plan. Jesus said that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will remind you of what I have taught you. And it's good to know, even though there are times we think, am I taking it in? I read my Bible, I'm not sure I'm taking it in. Or you hear teaching, you hear preaching, you think, if I could only remember that, not to worry, the Holy Spirit will remind you. And I happen to believe that we're on the verge of the greatest awakening in the history of the church. And I'll tell you who God will use. He's going to use ordinary people. There'll be no superstars. Those who know their Bibles. That is the qualification. That is it. You don't have to have been to college, seminary, but ordinary people who know their Bibles. You will be the ones. The Holy Spirit will remind you and you will be able to stand before kings, for people with authority, fearlessly. Put yourself totally under Scripture. Principle number two, be accountable to reliable people. Question, are you accountable to anybody? You need to have some around you who know you, who are not afraid to say something that you need to hear. Let me give you the famous words of prominent Christians who say, only God is the one I'm accountable to. The famous words of yesterday's man. I'm accountable only to God. Listen, nobody is that spiritual. You need to have people around you who can call you at any moment and say, where are you right now? How is it? How is it with your wife? What's going on? Do you have people you're accountable to who will tell you what you want not what you want to hear, but what you hope will be exactly what you need to hear. We're living in a time, as I said, when more and more prominent Christians, it's so sad, are falling and not ending well. And in every case, it's a situation where they were not accountable to anybody. They just think they're so spiritual. They can just answer to God. I'll say it again, nobody is that spiritual. I want those around me who are not afraid to say, RT, what's going on? Where are you right now? How's Louise? How's your marriage? I need friends like that. Be accountable to reliable people. Get good people around you. And if they say, what's going on? You will not resent this if you have nothing to hide. Principle number three, be squeaky clean 
regarding finances. The love of money is a root of all evil. Those who want to be rich fall into a snare. God promises to supply your need. The trouble with us, we're not content just to have our needs supplied. He will give you more than you deserve. But I would say this, pay your income tax and pay your tithe. Learn to live on 90% of your income. And I can tell you a principle. You cannot outgive the Lord. It's a fact. Principle number four. Maintain sexual purity. Live by the interpretation of the seventh command that Jesus gave. Let me explain what I mean. You see, the reason Jesus gave his own interpretation of the Mosaic law is because he was addressing Pharisees who thought they kept the law because they kept the outward part of the law. For example, you could be a good Pharisee and live in revenge and unforgiveness and bitterness. You could be a good Pharisee who thought they kept the law perfectly. You could be a good Pharisee and watch pornography. Because Jesus said, if you look on a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. I will ask you a question. Only you know the answer. It's something not likely many know about you. Do you watch pornography? Are you addicted to pornography? It is known as the preacher's secret sin. Some years ago, the Southern Baptist Convention were meeting in Los Angeles, and the hotel manager said, well, uh, this week uh, they won't be watching any of the sex channels. Do you know what? It actually went up. Ministers, 30,000. It just shows how many people live secret lives that God knows about. And this is part of the reason for the absence of the anointing. I urge you, you cannot become too careful when it comes to the opposite sex. And if you're watching pornography, I can tell you it will destroy your marriage, it will destroy you, and if you're doing it, I would say to you, stop it now. You cannot, as I said, become too careful when it comes to the opposite sex. James said the tongue is a fire. It will set a forest, fire on, uh, forest on fire. You see, the tongue is a fire. Men are attracted by sight and flattery. Women are attracted by touch and flattery. And are you in an affair thinking about having that situation? If you're in an affair now or thinking about it, I would beg you, as I've done before from this pulpit, stop it. It's only a matter of time you'd give a thousand worlds to turn back to this moment. 
Principle number five, come to terms with jealousy when it comes to another person's gift or looks or popularity. Now, I'm not wanting to give anybody false guilt. We're, we're all tested by jealousy. I've written a book on jealousy. Learn to recognize it in yourself. It was the downfall of King Saul. It's when David killed Goliath and he became a hero. And then Saul heard them singing. Saul has slain his thousands. David, his tens of thousands. And you know, Saul was more threatened by young David than he was all of the Philistines. And so when Saul realized that David was more popular than he was, he was filled with jealousy. It was his downfall. And it was the worst thing that could ever have happened at that time. Learn to recognize it in yourself. If you have an enemy, look carefully and ask, is jealousy an ingredient? There's a verse in Proverbs, who can stand before jealousy? Nobody can. There's nothing you can do about it. If they're jealous, you can do all you can to change them. You, you can't. And be careful that you don't let it happen to you. Are you jealous of another's face? Some are jealous of another's lace. Some are jealous of another's race. And even some are jealous of another's grace, their anointing. Recognize this and ask God to cause you to come to terms with it or it could be your downfall. It doesn't need to happen. Principle number six. Be willing not to get the credit for what you do. Get your satisfaction in knowing that God knows. John 5:44, the verse that 60 years ago when I was just starting in the ministry somehow gripped me and it's all because I began to see the danger of wanting praise from people rather than praise from God. Jesus said to the Pharisees, how can you believe who receive honor one of another and seek not the honor that comes from God only? And I would urge you, get to the place that you want to please Him. Get your joy from knowing that you're pleasing Him. Here's the challenge, which gives you more satisfaction? When God is pleasing you or when you are pleasing God? Well, I think if we're totally honest, we get more when God is pleasing us, when he gives us the breakthrough, the answer to prayer, the anointing, things like that. But I would urge you, get to the place that you would just want to please him and get your satisfaction knowing 
Because without faith, it is impossible to please God. And there are those times when you just wish he would answer your prayer. You, oh, you pray that your prayer will be answered, and then you'll be happy. But maybe it's a time when God is saying, now you can please me by waiting on me. Principle number seven. Always keep your word. You see, honesty must be surely the total motivation of your entire life. Be sure in your heart of hearts that you tell the truth and you keep your promise to God and to others. Transparent character, transparent honesty. Principle number eight, live in total forgiveness. Now, one of the first sermons I preached when Pastor Tim kindly asked me to speak here at Times Square Church was a sermon that was born in our darkest hour. Louise and I, while in London, went through the greatest trial of our whole lives. And what happened was unfair, was unjust, and we couldn't tell anybody. An old friend by the name of Joseph Tsun from Romania happened to be in London. And because I knew Joseph wouldn't tell anybody, I told Joseph Tsun exactly what happened. <laughs> if I'm honest with you, the reason I told Joseph is that I thought he'd put his arm around me and say, RT, you ought to be angry. Get it out of your system. That's what I was hoping he would say. He just looked at me. And if I could narrow 25 years at Westminster Chapel down to 15 minutes, they would be my finest hour. It's when Joseph Zone looked at me and said, RT, you must totally forgive them. For until you totally forgive them, you will be in chains. Release them and you will be released. The greatest word I ever heard in my life. But I said, Joseph, I can't. And I said, I haven't told you everything. There's more. And it began. He said, RT, stop it. Release them, and you will be released. I said, Joseph, I can't. He said, you can and you must. And it could be that I'm talking to some here. As you're ending the year 2023, you're beset with anger, bitterness, holding a grudge, unforgiveness, and just waiting for the day that your enemy is exposed. I would urge you, before this day is over, to come to the place that you totally forgive them. How do you know you've done that? Well, one thing, total forgiveness is earmarked by 
not telling anybody what they did. You see, the problem with us, when somebody hurts us, we get on the phone and say, here's what they did to me. And especially if it's somebody that's rather well-known, you can't bear the thought that anybody would admire the person who's hurt you so much. And so you want to set the record straight. And, and you, you, you want to do God's work for him. Never mind, we know that God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. We say, yes, Lord, but you are so slow. that <laughs> I can tell you, come to the place that you don't tell anybody. You can tell one person for therapeutic reasons. Not two, not 10, not 20, not 200, one. We had a situation at Westminster Chapel where a lady came to see me in the vestry and said, they found my rapist and they want me to testify in a court of law. I said, well, you must. Oh, no, you've taught me to forgive, and I've forgiven him. I said, I believe you, that's wonderful, but a crime must be reported. And she did tell it. But what's the real reason we tell it? We tell it because we can't bear the thought that they get away with it. We want everybody to know. You know the old spiritual, nobody knows the troubles I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. That's the way he likes it. He wants to be the only one that knows. But when we've told 20 or 50, and then we tell him, we haven't confided in him. The first proof of total forgiveness, you tell nobody what they did. You let them save face instead of rubbing their noses in it. You let them save face. You don't let them be afraid of you. You see, total forgiveness, love casts out fear. You know, husband and wives will play this game, keep the other just a bit nervous, afraid. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 5 says, love keeps no record of wrongs. Why do we keep records? Well, to prove we've paid. Why do we keep a record of wrong? Oh, uh, so we can throw it up. The husband says to the wife, I will remember that. And sure enough, two or three days, he quotes back. Do you know, if you would take this seriously, if there's anybody here, your marriage is on the rocks, your marriage could be healed by sunrise tomorrow morning if both of you would tear up that record of wrongs. You say, well, I'll do it if he will. No, you do it. I'll do it if she does. No, you do it. You do it for Jesus. That's the way you forgive. And you don't tell what you know about them. You don't expose their darkest secret. And the big thing is that you pray for them. And when you pray for them, you don't just say, Lord, I just commit them to you. No, when you pray for them, it's you ask God to bless them. You say, well, I could never do that. Well, I can tell you that when you begin to pray for your enemy, 
that God will actually bless them. This is when you realized you crossed over into glory and into joy and into freedom. And nobody, nobody would ever know. But God knows. And you actually pray that God will bless them. And so I'm saying to you, if you could enter into this new year devoid of bitterness, when you actually pray for them to be blessed, you've no idea what it would mean for your future. You'll never be the same again. Proof number nine, be a thankful person. One of the best sermons I've ever heard on gratitude was just a couple weeks ago, your pastor, Pastor Tim. You see, God loves gratitude. He hates ingratitude. And learn to be a thankful person. Always show appreciation for someone who does something for you. But the main thing is to be thankful to God. I never will forget it. Many years ago, well, it's actually been 30 years ago. 30 years ago, I was preaching from Philippians, and we went through the book of Philippians. We came down to chapter 4, verse 6. I'll never forget it as long as I live. This has only happened to me one time in my whole life. I was preaching on these words, uh, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and thanksgiving, put your request to God. And with thanksgiving, well, I had in my notes to say something about being thankful when you ask for things, but all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit came on me with deep conviction. Never had anything like it before or since. And in the middle of my sermon, it was as if my whole life passed before me. And I began to see things in a different way. I had not been thankful. And I said, God, help me to get through this sermon. I want to I talk to you alone. Help me to get through it. It was miserable. I just prayed to finish. I went to my vestry, locked the door, got on my knees. And I thought he would start being easy on me. It was even worse. He began to show me one thing after another in my life and said, do you realize what I've done for you? And this, this, he began to name me. I said, well, Lord, you know I'm thankful. He said, but you didn't tell me. And he would show me something else. Do you remember that? Well, Lord, you know I'm thankful, but you didn't tell me. And I made a vow that day that I would from then on be a thankful man. And I can tell you, honestly, it's a vow I have kept. We've, we've done things, to, Louise and I, every day before we go to bed at night, I think of at least three things. I've done it for over 30 years. I'm thankful for. I keep a, a journal and I read it every morning and go through what happened yesterday just thanking God for everything. And I would urge you, as you enter into 2024, 
Be a thankful person. Did you know that Mayo Clinic, one of the most respectable medical institutions in the world, 10 years ago, I read it with my own eyes, in a bulletin came out with, with what they said was a fact. Thankful people live longer. Maybe that'll get you going. But they weren't going by any statistic except observation. They weren't trying to produce any kind of theological position. No, they were just going by a fact. Thankful people live longer. And I would urge you, as you enter into the new year, to be a thankful person. And I tell you this, when you learn to be thankful for everything, I mean, I, well, you, you would expect me to say this, but I'm thankful for this church. I'm thankful for the fact that in 1957, you've heard me say this before, in July 1957, I came into the Dominion Theater. That's what it was, used to be called. I was on the fourth row, about fourth from the end, to see Rex Harrison and Julie Andrews in My Fair Lady. I was 20 years old. And I had no idea that one day I'd be here speaking to you. I want you to know I don't deserve this. I'm not trying to sound humble. I'm telling you the truth. But God has just done it. And he'll do it for you. He will do it for you. And to learn to be thankful. And back to the point, be willing to admit when you get it wrong. And be willing to show that when you grieve the Holy Spirit, it will backfire on you. You see, there's something about my preaching that you probably don't know. Not even sure you'd believe me. But I'm telling you the truth before God. I am not that gifted. I'm no orator. If I have a secret, it's learning not to grieve the Holy Spirit. Because when I grieve the Holy Spirit, I simply can't prepare a sermon. Now, there are some who could do it anyway. I know preachers that are so gifted that they can always get a sermon because it's their gift. But I'm not that. I'm not that. I'll tell you this. When I was at Westminster Chapel, I started my Sunday morning sermon preparation on Monday morning. And uh, it's something I did for 25 years because you, I always wanted to be prepared when I was there. Every word I speak goes, would, would go all over the world. In fact, I think there's 3,250 sermons on the internet when I was at Westminster Chapel. But one Sunday morning, and it was a Monday morning actually, something happened that I wasn't going to be able to prepare that Monday. And it was the same way on the Tuesday, on the Wednesday. I was preaching all over England. 
And it was now Saturday morning, and I did not have anything ready for Sunday morning. And I can tell you now, I was in a state of panic. I thought, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't have any, I haven't cracked a book. I haven't translated any Greek or any, I, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. But it was 9 o'clock Saturday morning. 9 o'clock Saturday morning. I said, Lord, this has been a hard week. Please give me something for today. There'll be no interruptions and I have today to get ready for tomorrow and overrule, please, Lord. I'll never forget, it was 9 o'clock in the morning, and uh, Louise and I got into an argument. In Kentucky, we would call it a dandy. She was horrible. I went to my room and vestry, or rather uh, my office there in London, and I got my Bible. I said, Lord, give me something for tomorrow. Jesus, help me deal with that woman. <laughs> I had a blank sheet of paper, pen, 10 o'clock, nothing. I said, Lord, please help me now. Please help me. 11 o'clock, nothing. 12 o'clock, Jesus, you've got to give me something because every word I speak tomorrow will go all over the world. Please help me. 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock. It was awful. I don't know what I'm going to do. I, I, I couldn't think anything. I had the text. Nothing came to me. Zero. 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock. You see, I was waiting for her to come and apologize. I got up, went into the kitchen. I can see her now standing by the refrigerator. She was crying. I said, honey, I'm sorry. It was all my fault. She said, well, it wasn't all your fault. It was partly my fault. I said, no, it was all my fault, and I am so sorry. We kissed, we hugged. I went back to the same desk, same Bible, same blank sheet of paper, and God is my witness. In 45 minutes, I had everything I needed. Everything I needed. I mean, I could not write, I, I couldn't write the thoughts fast enough. All of a sudden, they're just pouring in, in and I realized in 45 minutes, I had my sermon. It was ready. Usually it took three or four days. You can accomplish more in five minutes when the Spirit comes down than in five years when you're trying to work it up or trying to work past bitterness and anger and unforgiveness. And God has dealt with me that way because I can't prepare a sermon if I've got a grudge against anybody. It's just the way it is. And I can tell you, this is the way forward to finish well in 2024. And so I come now to principle number 10. Have a strong prayer life. How much do you pray? If there were flashed on this screen, how much actual time 
you spend alone with God, average, every day, what would it say? Children spell love, T-I-M-E. What if God spells love, T-I-M-E? How much do you pray? When I first went to Westminster Chapel, I urged every member to pray 30 minutes a day. It was the way I was brought up. I thought everybody should. You would have thought the chandeliers would fall. One deacon said, five minutes a day is all I can do. Told me more about him than I wanted to know. Martin Luther prayed two hours a day. John Wesley prayed two hours a day. The average church leader in America and Britain spends four minutes a day alone with God. And you wonder why the church is powerless. I'm saying a great work of the Spirit is coming. The people he will use will not be the famous, the superstars, those that you hear about on TV and all that. It'll be those who just love their Bibles and have time for God. I would urge you to start a prayer life in the year to come. My dad prayed 30 minutes a day counting his Bible reading before he went to work. He wasn't a preacher, he was a layman. My first memory of my father on seeing him on his knees praying before he went to work. And I urge you, praying is never wasted time. You'll stand before God one day and you won't regret any time spent in prayer. You might regret how you spent your money, how you spent your time, who mattered, what mattered. Have a strong prayer life. And I urge this above all else. And I can guarantee you keep these 10 suggestions in the year 2024 and you will end well for the coming year. But the first step, and this way it could be that somebody who feels you have not been doing so good and you're not going to finish well in the next four or five days, I can give you a word that will help. First step, do you know for sure that if you were to die today, would you go to heaven, do you? And if you were to stand before God, you will. And if he were to ask you, he might, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? I want you to think honestly. Imagine now it's a real thing because you are going to stand before him. That's going to happen. What if he did ask you? He might. Why should I let you into my heaven? Because not everybody's going to heaven. Not everybody's going to heaven. What makes you think you will? Why should he let you in? And there's a reason. So what comes to your mind right now? Well, this is what I would say to God. Well, I can say to you right now. If it hasn't come to your mind, 
in the last 15 seconds because Jesus died on the cross for your sins. If that hasn't come to your mind, wouldn't want to be in your shoes for anything in the world. Jesus said, Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. So what makes you think you'd go to heaven? One hope, that Jesus died. Maybe you say, well, I've tried hard. I've tried to live a good life. I believe you, but that won't save you. And even if you say, well, I've done my best. I'm sorry, well, that won't save you. We say, well, RT, that's not fair. All we could do is our best. No, it is fair. Because this is why God sent his son into the world. To a virgin in Nazareth. She conceived by the Holy Spirit. Gave birth to a baby in Bethlehem. Who was God as though he were not man. He was man as though he were not God. At the age of 30, he began his public ministry. He promised to fulfill the law. Amazing statement. Most stupendous statement he made. I'm going to fulfill the law. Nobody had ever done that before. That means he was without sin. 60 seconds a minute, 60 minutes an hour, 24 hours a day, every day of his life. And then they took him and crucified him. And while he was hanging on the cross, all of your sins and mine were transferred to him as though he were guilty. Isaiah 53, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He bore your sin. He bore your sin. I'm going to heaven. You say, well, then I'll go to heaven too if he bore my sin. There's one other thing. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. That means you come to the place, you transfer the trust that you've had in your good works to what Jesus did for you. All your eggs in one basket, not that you tried hard, but because you're trusting his blood. And that blood cried out for justice. And the wrath of God was satisfied. And those who trust his blood are regarded as righteous in his sight. I've got one hope. I've got one hope of going to heaven. Jesus died for me. Question. If you didn't say in your heart or feel that you would say in your heart because Jesus died, we can sort that out right now. As we come to the end of the year, you can finish well. I can give you a prayer to pray. You don't need to pray it out loud. But if you can pray this prayer from your heart, just say it right now, wherever you are. Lord Jesus, I need you. I want you. 
I'm sorry for my sins. Wash my sins away by your blood. I invite your Holy Spirit to come into my heart. And as best as I know how, I give you my life. That's it. Did you pray that prayer? I think somebody here prayed that prayer. The question is, are you ashamed that you prayed that prayer? Why do you ask, RT? Because Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. And if you prayed that prayer and you're not ashamed of it, in the next 15 seconds, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. You say, in front of all these people? Yep, in front of everybody. In the next five seconds, four, three, two, one. Stand to your feet. Remain standing. Stand to your feet. Remain standing. Okay. Remain where you are, st standing. Now, it's possible, it's possible that some standing, you were saved before tonight. It's possible. You heard the gospel, you responded, you did the right thing. But I want to say if you have never stood before or confessed or prayed a prayer like that before and this is the first time, guess what just happened to you? You've just been born again. Happy birthday. God bless you. Happy New Year.